I was biking by the Ontario Place Casino down on the lakeshore the other day. It was a little eerie how everything just stops. It's like a missing tooth right there on the waterfront. Big, shimmering photovoltaic towers on either side of it, and in the middle, nothing. I'm old enough to remember 15 years ago, when it was the brand new Trillium Park. It was a parking lot for years, but they redid it. Redid the whole thing with trails and trees and views of the lake. Five years later, it was a parking lot again. Leveled by the old Doug Ford government to serve the tens of thousands of people they assured us would flock to a premium casino destination, which they built at great garish expense. But it never really panned out. I guess no one told them the majority of gamblers, even then, were moving online. Ironically, in his crusade against red tape, Ford made it even easier to gamble on the internet. And let's face it, Toronto isn't Las Vegas. It's just not what we do. It was a total bust. Hemorrhaged money, then died. And there it sits. We've never been able to agree what to do with it since. Sell it off to developers? Make it into a park? Again? Well, who pays for that? I guess I was feeling curious. Maybe nostalgic. So I decided to check it out. There's a pretty elaborate graffiti mural on the north side of it that's worth hopping the fence for, which I did. No one was there to say I couldn't. No one's paying the security bills. As I wandered around the various overgrown terraces and overturned patio furniture, I spotted it. The old Cinesphere. I kind of forgot it was there. It's technically a protected heritage site, so rather than bothering to reopen the legislation, they just kind of built around it. It looked out of place. A bit of retro-cool hemmed in by what was probably an attempt at modernity in the early 2020s, but is now about as cool as a first-gen Apple Watch. And then I got mad. It's just such a waste. So many squandered opportunities in this city, so many false starts and missteps and incompetent leaders. I wondered where we'd be right now if we just had a little foresight. But then my extreme heat alert went off, so I biked to a cooling station to do some work. No sense dwelling on the past, I guess. This is Spacing Radio. We are back, as always, hiding from security drones in the broom closet of Serenity Condos, 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, 15 years ago I made a little time capsule full of interviews with experts where I asked them what the city of the future would be like 15 years from now. Today, in honor of Spacing's 30th year, I managed to exhume those interviews off of an old flash key, remember flash keys? And I'm excited to share them with you. I asked Toronto Environmental Alliance's Heather Marshall about the threats to Toronto's environment and possible solutions. 
and I spoke to journalist and technologist Bianca Wiley about the practical and ethical issues around privately driven so-called smart cities. But first, I asked futurist and Syntegrity complexity expert Trevor Haldenby just what exactly that all means. Stand by. Uh, Trevor, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me here in what is now, I imagine, based on when people are listening to this, the past, the distant past. It is the the near distant past, yes. Uh, How does one get to uh, hang the futurist shingle over their door? Uh, What's an average day for a futurist? Um, So you wake up, you go to school to to do the learning. Mm Mm-hmm. And it is by nature a cross-disciplinary field. The future is not locked into technology, as some people uh, like to think of it, and as the message is reflected a lot in mass media, that the future is smaller, better, faster, more gizmo-y, mm-hmm. typically more invasive as well. Right. Um, so the OCAD program in Strategic Foresight takes an approach that, uh, at its core, understanding the future and understanding the levers we can pull in the present to influence the future is a uh, social studies field. It's about economics. It's about uh, environmentalism and ecological science. Uh, it's about policy development. And it's also about emerging technologies. And understanding the sort of secret weapons, which include, include large group facilitation and storytelling and uh, visualization that can help stitch experts and constituents from all those different fields together so you can have a conversation with not just the people who already know what you're talking about or curious in a casual consumption kind of way, mm-hmm. uh, but giving giving people the tools to have meaningful conversations with a wide variety of people is, from my point of view, across systems, mm-hmm. what uh, a lot of foresight work and futures work is really about. It's not about having the best ideas about the future. Right. It's about figuring out how to get the people who do to talk to each other and see each other's point of view. Because in most cases, they'll vehemently disagree with each other about what's preferred, what's plausible, and what's possible. To a certain extent, you are playing Calvin Ball, but there are, you can make some <laughs> reasonable uh, assertions yes. of what a possible future might look like. Uh, yes. And there's a lot of futures work out there that is money ball. Right. That it's like global market based and um, uh, more like a management consulting kind of role uh, than a speculative exploration of the icky, icky and sexy facts and figures about the world of tomorrow we can imagine today. Right. And uh, one of your big things is not just what will the future look like, but as you said in uh, a TED talk that you gave uh, when you were working on a, a project called ZTO a few years back, mm-hmm. uh, y- you were interested in what the future would feel like. Mm-hmm. Can you unpack that a bit? Yeah, I think the there's an assumption in the futures field, which is predominantly occupied in like the academy and in the private sector mm-hmm. by disturbingly intelligent people who, for better and for worse, tend to be a little bit withdrawn when it comes to the idea about how their ideas actually resonate with the other 7.4999 billion people on the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're experts. My thinking about uh, futures, and it comes from the fascination I had with science fiction as a kid and as a teenager, is that it's, um, of course, it's an imaginative activity, right. not a predictive activity. Mm-hmm. And if it's an imaginative activity, well, everybody has the capacity to be creative and imaginative. 
So uh, the more you can make a conversation about the future, connect the dots for people from ideas and trajectories and chart lines to what would this feel like in my day-to-day life? How would this affect my ability to be myself in the world, my connections with my friends, family, lovers? Uh, What kind of products might I buy 10 years from now and what implications does that have for my privacy, my decency, um, and my status in relationship to other people. Like we're big, we're very big fancy apes. Mm -hmm. And most of the things we care about are the things that happen to us every day, not the ideas that could play out over the course of our lifetimes. Right. Though there are many exceptions to that, uh, we tend to understand the world in terms of what we experience through our senses. Like, Like most animals. Right. And so, uh, to sort of hack this, as you say, these, our, our eight brains who are concerned with the day to day is that where yeah. your work uh, and it, you know your work involved in influencing uh, speculative fiction is that kind of you know a means to an end to just get people thinking about further down the road than their usual you know window of what they care about you know a couple of days ago and a couple of days ahead yeah it's a it's a way to put those conversations about the next ten years the next one year the next three months. Uh, into the touch points that people have in their day-to-day lives to make it a point of what they're talking about every day, to make it a persistent conversation. Mm -hmm. So that's another dangerous thing we do about the future. And I alluded to that a bit earlier is we, we see things as done prematurely across the board. We see systems as like having run their course and like the experience we're having right now with the gizmos in our pockets and the rise of populism in the U S perhaps even within our own borders that like we've, we're experiencing the end of a phenomenon. Okay. Which the more you really think about the systems that make up our world from geological to social and everything in between, we're not looking at anything at a fixed point in time. We're looking at the results of the influence and interaction of an infinite number of complex systems. Right. And we don't see the interventions we make with those systems. We think we see the end result of those systems interacting as a, as a phase state. And that's not usually how things actually work. Mm-hmm. So if you want people to think critically about the future, there's two things that I think you need to hammer home. One is that the future is not done being made yet. Yeah. And second, that the, um, there are an infinite number of branching choices stemming out from this moment that will influence most of what's in the the futures we can imagine. And those decisions are going to be made by human beings and sometimes human beings in power and sometimes human beings who self-assemble in communities and sometimes people on the street and sometimes robots in human suits. Right. (laughs) Uh, With your involvement in Toronto 2033, it's an interesting sort of a development process where you were, you were brought in to sort of speak to the contributors uh, and, yeah. and kind of work with them to envision what be ultimately became the world of this book. Uh, can you tell me a bit about that process? Yeah. So we, in the futures world, we often use a framework called uh, steep to understand and to gut check ourselves to make sure we're covering all our bases. Are we thinking about all the things we need to think about when we're imagining a scenario of the future of banking or the defense industry or, Uh, affordable housing for all. Uh, And STEEP stands for social, technological, environmental, or ecological, uh, economic, and political. And we had people representing all of those different uh, silos or domains that are often considered in silos 
uh, in the room for this amazing one-day planning session where we got these authors together with these subject matter experts from City Hall and from um, the Toronto Region Conservation Authority and, and me representing weird and wonderful uh, technology from the world of tomorrow, from energy to robotics, uh, software and screens, VR, AR. And we just had this day-long geek out about... What sort of a world can we imagine a large variety of stories about Toronto 2033 fitting into? Mm -hmm. Rather than taking an approach of saying, here's the story, we're going to find different angles on it or uh, something. We worked at the stage of the, or at the scale of the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Toronto always seems to be thinking of itself as the center of the world. And for this exercise's purposes, I guess we were. Um, but figuring out what sort of a world different, quite divergent stories might be possible in is really the job. Creating a world that is not too locked down or oversimplified, mm-hmm. but is not just so endlessly varied that there isn't a, a sense of approachability. Right. And um, I feel like the stories that have resulted in 2033 take a number of very different approaches to occupying and existing in that world that we imagine together. Um, and part of what we're trying to do with that world is of course, not just imagine it as an end state, not imagine like 2033 is the year that everything happened, right? but to try to build a timeline between now and then, and then further off into the future, just like today, people in 2033 will be wondering about what might be two or five years away in the next election cycle or, um, the next great swing of climate change, climate chaos, um, we today are wondering about what's a few years ahead. They will be too. So it's important to have that sense of anticipation baked into the world of the stories and the characters of the stories. Mm-hmm. So while we were telling a 15 year, well, we we're building a 15 year old forecast of the city. We're talking about what might happen next year yeah. as well. And how the decisions that are being made now and everything from urban development to, um, to transit infrastructure, uh, I, I see in some of the stories that we finally got a relief line by 2033, which is... Uh, that's uh, optimistic. In my, both optimistic and relieving. <laughs> in my point of view. Um, there is a lot of momentum on stuff that's being decided today that may not show its face until 2033. Mm-hmm. So in these stories, we get a peek at um, what the fallout and follow-through of decisions that are being made today could look like. And I think that's probably one of the most interesting functions of science fiction is not just to explore an intact world that's out of reach. You're not with science fiction. You're not, uh, as the adage goes, you're not an old person planting a tree that you know, you're never going to sit under. Mm-hmm. You're not writing science fiction. A lot of the time for people from a hundred years from now as a manual for them to run their society, right? Using it to echo and mirror and rhyme some of the things that exist in the world today. Mm hmm. And imagine how they distort when that echo comes back or when you look at it in the mirror rather than hearing about something as an idea over and over and over again. Before our deadly heat waves became a constant part of our lives, before the beaches were swallowed up by Lake Ontario, 
There were people who were actively trying to raise the alarm on things like climate change before we reached a point of no return. Heather Marshall was one of those people. This might be a bit of a bummer to listen to for those of us old enough to remember a time when we had a chance to curtail the almost daily climate disasters we experience now. But maybe it's a reminder to double our efforts now before the city is unlivable. Heather, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Uh, so we've been talking to people who were involved in the sort of initial world bo- world building process uh, for the book uh, Toronto 2033. You were one of those people who came in as a, an expert uh, to talk about environmental issues. What was that process like for you? It was super fun. I mean, personally, as a fan of, of speculative fiction and science fiction, it's really exciting to see uh, an opportunity where you can talk to artists and writers about a future that you have been thinking about and worrying about every day in your day-to-day work. So as an environmentalist that's doing a lot of advocacy work with the Toronto Environmental Alliance, I'm constantly concerned about the future and thinking about uh, effective solutions to get us uh, in a more sustainable state as a city. And so it's really exciting to be able to share some of that, the facts and the expectations that we see our city facing with, uh, with artists who can really paint a clear picture and you know, creatively pursue um, some possible alternative futures. And what were some of the expectations that you brought to that sort of initial meeting? I think a, a big one that we we talked a lot about uh, and th- in that roundtable was around climate change. And, you know, we, we know climate change is, is happening and there's been many reports by scientists worldwide uh, giving us all a, a clear but very bleak picture about how climate change is going to Im- impact all of us worldwide. As a city, we've seen some of that already happening with uh, major flooding events or extreme heat days being extended. Um, but we know there's more coming. Um, and even this summer we saw you know, wildfires happening in areas that we wouldn't normally see that, that type of uh, impact happening in Ontario. And so we talked a lot about climate change and the city of Toronto's climate driver study, because they already were projecting what things might look like in Toronto in 2040, 2050, especially around extreme weather. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to share some of the uh, outcomes of that study that could be used to um, kind of imagine what 2033 would look like based on that information. And when you look ahead to the future, is it uh, this sort of bleak uh, dystopia or or do you have some cause for optimism? I don't think I'd be doing the work that I'm doing as a, at an environmental organization if I didn't have some optimism. Um, I do think that uh, that that bleak outlook is uh, what gets me up in the morning and uh, because I know how pressing the issues are that mm-hmm. we're facing as a as a city, but also just worldwide on environmental issues. But um, I have hope for the future, and I, I certainly think that's what gets me to my desk every day. Um, so the the negative stuff might might get me out of bed, but um, and keep me up at night. But it's uh, coming to work every day, committed to making some change that. Uh, motivates me. So I know that we definitely can build a better future, um, but we we have a lot of work to do and we really need to start taking it seriously. Mm -hmm. I mean, Toronto has been impacted, it feels like almost every year by some great weather event. Um, Last year, I'm thinking about the island almost submerged underwater. A couple years before that, I think in 20, uh, well, actually twice now, there's been major, major floods where you see things like streetcars halfway submerged through water and that kind of thing. Um, what does climate change mean for a city like Toronto right now? 
Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we know we're already uh, experiencing the effects of climate change as a city. Uh, as you have said, you know, flooding is, a, is an area where we have seen increased flooding events in our city and, um, you know, sometimes lake, lake level rising as well. But what we know from the climate driver study is that we're expecting to see more intense rainfall. Um, and especially in months like July and August. And we're expecting to maybe have less snow, but more rain in the wintertime. So we know that our infra current infrastructure can't really handle all of the flooding events that we've already seen in our city. Mm -hmm. And our city's actually doing all these basement flooding studies across the city because they know certain areas are more vulnerable to the impacts of flooding. And frankly, when there's flooding in the city, it comes to a standstill. Um, transit literally stops and we can't even get to important uh, areas of the city like the Toronto Islands to enjoy the beautiful green spaces we have. Um, I think there were even ads that were showing, you know, a kayak being the new way to get to uh, Toronto Islands because we might not actually be able to, uh, to access some of that land um, by bicycle or on foot. Mm -hmm. So I think imagining the impacts that we can see from extreme rainfall is really helpful. Um, and the basement flooding studies and these rainfall studies help us to understand the, the level of impact we can have. But if we don't start changing our infrastructure, we just won't have the resiliency as a city to uh, respond to the extreme flooding events that we will be having. And in the collection of stories, uh, you see that uh, there's talk in one of the books about how the beaches are totally submerged in uh, underwater. They're no longer called the beaches because there are no beaches. It's called Lakeside now. Mm -hmm. uh, is that kind of what came out uh, when, when you were collaborating with the authors? Yeah, I think they were really curious to know if lake levels would be rising or we'd be experiencing more flooding and, and trying to imagine what that future would look like. And I certainly think that, you know, there are ways to manage flooding and, and maybe not have to build like a lakeside community. Like mm -hmm. I hope we won't have to, uh, to do that. Um, we don't have to have houses on stilts necessarily if we actually invest in, you know, greener infrastructure. There's ways to manage rainfall naturally the way a forest would or a field would. Um, we have to kind of take away some of that that concrete infrastructure and think about more naturalized ways to manage stormwater. Um, but we also need to be thinking about the parts we can play to keep, you know, uh, global temperatures below 1.5 degrees. Mm. And I think that's something that, you know, as a city, yes, we'll face flooding and extreme heat, but we won't be nearly as impacted as some of the other cities globally. Um, we don't have to worry about permafrost, um, you know, melting and, and soil just falling away from our feet. We don't have to worry about the ocean levels rising and, you know, affecting our city the same way that Vancouver or Halifax would have to worry about it. Right. Um, so we really are in a more fortunate position than some other cities, um, but it's incumbent on us to recognize how much of a contribution we're having to climate change and be imagining a city that's low carbon and zero emission is part of our contribution to tackling climate change, not just getting ready for the impacts like extreme weather. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, we, we wake up to headlines and you say optimism is a big part of what you do, but we, we are waking up to headlines these days where, you know, the, they say the, the clock is ticking, like it, it's kind of now or never. Does, mm -hmm. does it feel like that for you and the, the circles that you work in? Absolutely. We know how long it can take, even when a government has a great idea and the political will to do something, we know how long it takes to build 
you know, wind farms. We know how long it takes to phase out our reliance on fossil fuels. So every good idea that actually has money behind it and policy mechanisms behind it still takes a lot of time Mm -hmm. to get it moving. So we really do have to move quickly and especially make sure we have the political will at all levels of government to move quickly. Um, Because even moving quickly, it's still going to take some time to transition. I wanted to talk to you about political will because we've reached a, a sort of a point in our culture, um, you know, here and probably across North America where, uh, you know, almost everyone agrees that climate change is a thing, right? Even even more conservative voices, uh, even the Doug Ford provincial government right now, uh, while they're undoing a lot of the sort of green policies of the previous government, they're still saying, no, no, we believe in climate change, right? Because they've been accused of being climate deniers and uh, being sort of, you know, shoulder to shoulder with those more radical elements of the right who are just it's not a thing it's a hoax all this and that so you almost you won't find a politician of any political stripe a serious politician uh, who's going to deny that this is an issue uh while at the same time saying but we'll deal with it later or we're actively dismantling uh you know green policy initiatives uh can you speak to that like it seems like the one we're saying one thing and doing another on the provincial level, on the federal level, or we just bought a pipeline that we're trying to enforce all the way across uh, stolen land. Uh, and here municipally, I mean, we have a John Tory uh, in his second term as mayor uh, who sort of campaigned on, on uh, fighting a policy that was geared towards protecting flooding in the city. Mm. I, I think, like you said, you know, the, the days of questioning whether climate change is real is over in the political sphere for the most part, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's a question of political will to act and to act quickly. Um, with, you know, the IPC report, IPCC reports saying that we only have 12 years to really get a strong handle on climate catastrophe and keep our temperatures um, at, at or below 1.5 degrees. Uh, that's three terms of government. Mm-hmm. That's three election cycles. That may sound like a lot, but it's not. Mm-hmm. And um, quite frankly, we're not seeing politicians, we're not seeing candidates running on strong climate change action platforms. And we really do need to see that. It's uh, It still remains to be uh, a question of whether or not they're in denial about climate change or agree that it's happening. Um, we really have to move past that. They actually have to be ready to adopt uh, significant policy changes and change the way they uh, work with business as well. Like the, the way they've supported large corporations as governments in the past as a way to secure employment, you know, in mm-hmm. our country needs to completely change. Right. Especially when, uh, you know, some of the more traditional areas of industry that we've relied on uh, in this country, in this province. Uh, I'm thinking of like auto manufacturing, that kind of thing. Uh, Or, you know, if we pitch it to the West, uh, you know, sort of bitumen refinery, um, that all is going to come to an end in some form or fashion. It has to, right? We're we're reaching our past peak oil. I don't even know where we're at with that at this point. And there was a push to say, well, we can convert all these sort of old school industrial jobs into new green energy jobs. Um, and that's had some pushback in its own right. But uh, how, how do you, I'll put it more broadly, how do we as people challenge our, our politici- politicians and policymakers to uh, move beyond just greenwashing, saying, of course, we care about the environment? 
but we're still going to do business as usual. How do we demand of them that they uh, actually commit to policies that uh, will bring about meaningful change in the short amount of time that you've outlined? Uh, is there hope? <laughs> I, I do think that there is. I, I think that politicians need to feel secure. Mm-hmm. Um, they need to know that the people who voted for them will vote for them again. Um, that's often one of the big things they care about is making their voters happy and getting reelected. Um, but some of them really are motivated to jump into the political ring because they want to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, looking more carefully at what political candidates, uh, intentions are when they run for politics, like when they run for government. Um, you know, we need to, we need to question them. We need to put them in the hot seat when they're, um, you know, on the election trail and they're on the election campaign. We actually need to be asking them the difficult questions about what, what's their vision for a better city or a better province or better country. And we, we can't, we can't let them get get away with saying that you know a pipeline is a matter of national security. Um, climate change is a matter of national security. So mm-hmm. if we actually want to prioritize action on climate change, we need to significantly reorganize and revision what our country looks like, where we put our taxpayer dollars. Um, do we want to continue putting our taxpayer dollars into the fossil fuel economy, or do we want to be investing in the alternative? Do we want to be investing in what we're going to need next? Um, as you said, peak oil is something we've, we're already reaching. Um, so we really do need to be thinking about how we use the resources we have. If we have finite oil resources, do we really want to spend them on, you know, single vehicles driving around on highways? Or do we want to use that energy to build, you know, wind power, solar panels, and actually use that fuel, if we need to use it at all, to build the new economy and to build the new energy systems that we're going to need to rely on when we don't have fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, I think there's a lot of uh, fights around territory and land rights right now. And governments actually need to be clear that they're going to listen to the will of the people. They're going to respect the the people who have traditional rights on land and and not steamroll those things in in the uh, with the intention of it being like a national security issue when it really isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it gives them this type of um, it gives they're giving themselves permission to put profits before people. They're using the excuse that it's creating jobs when really, when we look at you know where the future is, it's not going to be in some of these in intensive industries. It's going to be in alternative uh, industries that are building a greener you know uh, economy. So we need to start investing in building those economic drivers now so that we can have a, a fair and just transition from very fossil fuel and energy intensive industries that we currently rely on and very natural resource heavy and extractive industries that we rely on in Canada and be able to provide employment opportunities in these alternative sectors. Um, we won't get there by continuing to put money into one and completely ignoring the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually have to start building it. <laughs> All right. Well, Heather, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Finally, we're all used to Google's almost ubiquitous influence over our downtown, especially if you live or work near the waterfront. At the time the company announced its Sidewalk Lab experiment, which was going to build the neighborhood of the future today, 
it was hailed as a big win by all three levels of government. There were, however, people with serious concerns over letting a major company take the reins when it comes to things like urban planning, housing, mobility, and data collection. Here's what Tech Reset Canada co-founder Bianca Wiley had to say at the time. difficult to describe you. You're a bit of an analyst, a consultant, an advocate, and a journalist. Uh, you wear a lot of hats. Uh, you co-founded um, uh, the Tech Reset. Is that what it, tech, yeah. yeah. You co-founded that. Uh, can, can you tell me a little bit about your work and how you kind of found your place in this field, which is, you know, yeah, addressing a bit of everything. Sure thing. It It is the combination of three um, bits of my background, I think, that have led me to where I am. I worked in technology for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so I did a range of things in there from operations, tech support, some infrastructure work, and I ended up doing product management. So I've got tef- I have a tech background. Mm-hmm. I also worked for five years supporting public engagement processes. So working with governments, government agencies to you know run public meetings. And then the last five years, I've been doing advocacy around technology, data, you know, policy on technology. And so sort of if you bring those things together, um, it's, it's a great time to be thinking about the democratic implications of technology. Mm-hmm. And I think that we don't have a lot of good mechanisms for that. So um, in the work I'm doing now, it's a very messy, loose, you know, every day is like, okay, well, how do we engage people in this? Or how do we broaden the conversation? Or how do we get some of our words back? Because a lot of them, you know, have been used by tech companies and we need to be using them and making sure we're defining, you know, what tech is, what it isn't, you know, how we control it so it doesn't impact us in ways we don't want. Mm-hmm. And specifically, you do a lot of work on the sort of intersection of technology and urban planning, urban design, uh, urban policy. Uh, can, you, can you expand on that a little bit? Certainly. It's a great place right now, I think, because there's opportunity, lots of opportunity to use technology in urban planning, but I think there's also a really, um, it's a really critical time to think about what is a technology solution for an urban planning problem and what is a political solution for an urban planning problem. Um, Because I understand that there's a lot of, you know, data is already highly used by many of the professions that support urban planning, you know, whether it's, I mean, it's all over the place, right? Transportation is an obvious one, but, it, you know, in, in any kind of modeling, any kind of work that's being done, there's already a lot of data that's been used for a long time. Um, but that includes data that people like, you know, Statistics Canada oversee or that cities collect. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing now is the, the space uh, being eyed as, I think, as a market right. for technology companies. And I think we're seeing a range of influence um, from sort of the uh, gentrification impacts of big tech companies. You, mm-hmm. know, you see that a lot in the U.S. And then you're also seeing the economic development narrative. You know, so you want to bring um, economic development to a city, perhaps through you know job creation or whatever else, and that has an impact on urban planning. You know, that's part of part of the realm. Um, but then at a very you know resident level. I think a lot of people are aware of things that uh, have needed to be done to improve urban planning, and those are really about funding, and mm-hmm. those are really about political decisions. And so it, I think this, this is this time right now where there may be places where technology might be really helpful, yeah. but I think it's critical to make sure that it's not sold as a solution for things 
that are that you know that have nothing to do with technology. So I think a lot about cases with transportation, or I can give you a very specific case about data collection. Um, uh, do, do you know the Gale Institute? I don't know. So I don't know them well, but I know that they're one of the sort of placemaking, um, one of the organizations that supports placemaking, and you know how do you do people-centered urbanism? And they've been supporting um, work around increasing very local data collection, like small counts of things, mm-hmm. um, in order to say, you know, in this park, perhaps um, this is the activity we've captured. Activity. This is how people use this park. And and I think this is one of these areas where you have to stop and think. Okay, you can do this by numbers. Mm-hmm. You can also do this by qualitative research. You can talk to people. Right. You know, you, you you can you can learn about things in ways other than numbers. Mm-hmm. And so I think where I'm where I'm a little concerned right now is that even even organizations and people who are very progressive, you know, I'm making air quotes right now, but progressive in maybe their their planning politics. Um, are just sliding into quantification of things right. when there are you know, many other ways to think about knowledge and uh, many other ways to think about how we make decisions. And I think like, so this, this is where I'm feeling particularly concerned. And I think it's ahistorical in some ways to look at what's happened in, you know, in city planning for the last 40, 50, 60 years and not acknowledge that it, um, there's a lot of entrenched power there's a lot of planning decisions that haven't, you know, been good for everybody in a city, and giving people who are in those positions more power through numbers mm-hmm. is something to challenge right now. Because I think people really have to look at their track record in the last forty years and say, "Hey, you had some time here to do things and to make changes, and we need to make sure that you know those changes happen." And they're not really happening. Right. Um, let's go to Sidewalk Labs uh, because uh, you, you've been very critical. Right? You, you write quite a lot about it and you engage with people on that front. Um, Sidewalk Labs, for our listeners, is uh, you know, it's a sort of spin-off company of, of Google, uh, which is in talks with uh, multiple levels of government to uh, redevelop a Keyside neighborhood uh, on Toronto's waterfront. And it has kind of been pitched to us as the uh, the community of the future. Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're going to have smart technology like built right into the very fabric of this future neighborhood. And um, a lot of people are very excited by it. Uh, that proposition, not just because of the, you know, economic boon that it might be, it's it's Google in Toronto. Like that's that's something that uh, many people in Toronto very much want. Uh, in the same way that we we really fought to try and get uh, you know the Amazon mm-hmm. headquarters here, but mm-hmm. uh, but there are concerns, and uh, you know we're talking about uh, the Spacing's new book, uh, Toronto Twenty Thirty Three, and uh, you know that that look into fifteen years in Toronto's future paints a, a very grim, uh, almost. Uh, Orwellian sort of look at what the future of this Sidewalk Labs neighborhood might be. We don't have to go there. I'd like to hear what you think Sidewalk Labs could be and, and what your concerns are because you, you do out, uh, outline many concerns uh, through your work. There are, there's such a range, you know? Like I think, I think the most difficult thing um, about having a conversation about Sidewalk Labs is that because of a Google affiliation and because of big tech, Everything goes to a privacy discussion. You know, again, Happy International Privacy Day. But mm-hmm. it's it's a uh, it's you know privacy right now. Um, uh, Sean McDonald is a colleague of mine, and he said, you know, we're we're using the word privacy for a whole bunch of things we don't have words for. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really profound way to describe the problem we're having, which is that you know data, which is a big part of this planned neighborhood, yeah. enables things. 
um, it, it really enables systems to be influenced, right? And this kind of goes back to why this is not new. Like we look at data and we kind of lay down systems around it. We say, well, that data is saying that thing so that, you know, this is what we're going to do based on X, Y, Z, right? right? And so in these cases, if we're starting to use data that is, um, has a commercial intention, Right? So mm. laying down data or collecting data, we're really starting to talk more about who has power, who has control, who has knowledge about things. You know, What happens when you have a massive information asymmetry between actors like an alphabet mm-hmm. and cities? And what do you do when you've got a, a corporate entity who knows about the patterns of everything? Because it doesn't have to be about individuals. It can be at an aggregate sort of community level. It enables a marketization of all kinds of different urban products and services, right? Which may have nothing to do with privacy. Right. What it may have to do with is subtle privatization. Mm-hmm. I think we're not talking about uh, maintenance is always a thing when you got tech companies who are selling products to governments, right? It's like, well, sure, here's the first part, but then what does this look like in 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Who's doing the maintenance? What are the licensing fees, right? right. So there's, there's that track of it. But I think the fundamental thing that's happening right now is that governments may be procuring things that package up systems of rights and access um, that aren't the same as purchasing a streetcar. It's not the same as purchasing, you know, paper for the office. Like these, these are these are entire systems that you're saying. Okay, well, um, these are products that perhaps government um, may not even. And I don't mean this in a in a condescending way. I mean it like I would not understand either. They may not understand how the information is even being generated. And mm-hmm. then they're using those, that information in policy right. deliberation. And I think as much as some of the data that you know, cities may access now, it might be a bit antiquated how it's done. At least there's an understanding of what it is when you click a counter or when you, you know, lay something out and a car drives over it. Like everybody understands what it is. It's objective. Yeah. And it's also like you, you can follow how, it, how it's created. You understand it start to finish. Right. When you start to bring in products and services of the type that, you know, that really engage with machine learning and like deep software development, mm-hmm. um, I think it's, I think it's, I don't, think it's a good idea to start using things like that to make decisions that affect residents in a democratic process. Right. Right? Like I think so so I think that potential loss of control which is subtle. Like this is not going to be one big bang of a thing. This is incrementalism, right? Yeah. So I think there's that. I also think one of the big problems with this project is that everybody's looking at these pictures. Molly Sauter has done incredible work to explain this. Looking at pretty pictures whereas I you know and telling the story that there's the future. We're almost there. We're almost there. You can be there. And it's very, very detailed and defined. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not something that is democratic in its nature in terms of how, it, how it's created. It's sold. I mean, this is really marketing a future. This is, this is somebody saying this is the vision that is the future. This is a utopian vision. And losing input and engagement to how that might look because, you know, there could be so many different things to do on the waterfront. Yes. And suddenly we're having a conversation that's very binary, right? It's like it's either the utopia or no one wants to do like, you know, or or no, right. which is which is a very false, you know, way to present um, way to present what this might be. And I think the the last thing I want to say about this is that economic development narrative. The politicians that have been engaging on this uh, seem to be talking about it from a it will be good for Toronto because of jobs. Mm-hmm take, which is one thing. And that's at every level, the the mayor, uh, the former provincial liberal government and the current federal liberal government. Yeah, all going down that track um, without 
a lot of discourse about what it means for the residents here. You know, that's one thing. Secondly, you had Waterfront Toronto decided on behalf of a whole bunch of people without asking anyone that that there's a test bed now down here, that this idea that so, that somehow it was, it was thought that it would be good to have a, a living lab, like an R&D center mm-hmm. for Alphabet as a place where people are going to live. I don't think that's something that they should have just done without mm-hmm. consultation. Um, and then I think that Alphabet has $100 billion in cash. And for, for listeners, Alphabet is the parent company that owns Google and therefore owns Sidewalk Labs. Correct. And so I think there's a point at which you say the power asymmetry here in terms of what the intentions are. Um, Alphabet has used, Sidewalk Labs has used a term that they have patient capital, you know, that they can stick around for a while. Right. If it's, and they've been talking about infrastructure financing. Mm-hmm. And through the course of the 14, 15 months, we haven't been having discussions about P3s, what it means to have, you know, public-private partnerships, what it means to have Alphabet as the you know the, the the company that's financing infrastructure you know I think that's the, w- there's even moral and ethical questions about participating in the economy of Alphabet and its companies you know like this 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 is such a mixed bag of of issues yeah and so I think at the end of it there's a lot there that hasn't been talked about and what has been talked about is not the full story and privacy is definitely not the only thing and so I, I just don't think in the environment we're in that it's prudent to go forward with something like this because there's it's a false urgency. Right. Right? And if the only reason that this is appealing to our governments is because they're they're looking at the size of Alphabet and how much money it has that's liquid, mm-hmm. then let's have that conversation. And uh yeah, I mean like on the other hand, there are things to get excited about it, it at least theoretically in in a sort of uh you know, as you said, a, a lab experiment in in real life. Uh, but uh, Google's not going to build us a neighborhood for free. And the saying, I, I can't remember who to attribute it to, but if if you're getting something for free, then you're the product. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you talk about data privacy on such a hollow day as this, um, I don't want to be callous, but like, who cares? We no one reads the terms of service agreements, right? We we click these things. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just I want to see my friend's baby on Facebook. I want to do this. I want to do that. Um, and you know we're the companies like Google are saying that, well, this is sort of metadata or it's de-identified data. Like we're not, we're not uh, broadcasting your search history or, you know, but uh, there are arguments, uh, something that you were sharing online just today is that, uh, that that data can actually be sort of reverse engineered to find exactly like who you are because of where you're going to work and where you're sleeping. Uh, uh, can you talk about that? Like how scared, how paranoid should we be when normally we're happy to just kind of give away our data for free. I think it's, I just have to borrow, you know, when people have said this well, I like to, to use their words. Uh, a colleague of mine, Teresa Scassa, said it's not consent, it's surrender. And right now, a lot of, you know, the example you gave where you click the thing and you don't read it and you go on with it, it's, it's, it's not consent. And that's a problem. Right. Because, and I think, get we and this is really important, I'm glad you're asking the question this way, we got here after decades of not really knowing what was going on, mm-hmm. and that is how the technology industry operates, is they know this is this, this uh, permissionless innovation. Like, they, like 
they make things and they kind of just launch it out to the market and people like them and the consequences we'll figure that out after right so we're we're on you know we're on decades of this at this point and so i think though what's happening you know in the course of the last year and with the pro- proliferation of data and, and you know just a sheer amount of it and the geopolitics and the cambridge analytica and the you know you're starting to see the unintended consequences starting to peek out right where you say okay hmm uh, and that power asymmetry, that, that the fact that there's so much data collected um, about you and, uh, and capacity to do things that, now this is all democratic in terms of whether things bother you or don't, right? Like in certain cases are, you know, personal is probably a better way to think about it. But um, we're, we're looking at, the, 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 this runs a gamut here, right? If uh, there's data that's collected about you and you can't access products or services because you're being profiled, but you don't even know that. Right. That's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. That is a huge problem, right? Definitely. So if you're out there and, and you know legally say you're tweeting about something and uh, somebody in some marketing assessment thing has figured out that maybe there's going to be a child coming in your family or something like that, and then you know these and and these are things that these are stories that are told, not publicly often, but there's a lot of profiling going on in fairly nefarious ways right now. Now, that may be something that um, could discriminate. Mm-hmm. It also could be, and this is very, very relevant to the city's conversations, behavioral nudging, sort of suggesting things that you do, sort yeah. of knowing what your patterns are, and then maybe promoting options that make sense to you, which may just be hyper-targeted advertising. Yeah. And I think um, Zainab Tufeki is the name of a scholar who's a great TED Talk about uh, we're creating a dystopia for clicks. And it really, you know, it may seem like nothing when, you know, you click on something and the ad shows up for a week and you think, okay, fine, no big deal, right? But that same, and this is an example I think she gave, is, you know, the the kind of behavior that someone might exhibit when they were, say, manic, if they were having a manic episode and uh, could be sold trips to Vegas. Right. That takes a very different turn. Mm Mm-hmm. And right now, those are both just ads being sold based on behaviors. Right. Right? And so I think that's the kind of stuff, like it's not necessarily, I don't think it's, I don't think, you know, paranoia is one of these things where it's, it's, it's more about control. You know, it's about power, control, agency, autonomy. I think really important thing to think about with freedom of expression and freedom of speech is that a chill occurs when you think you're being watched. Right. When you're out somewhere and, you, you know, if you're thinking your behavior is being captured, you will modify your behavior. And you know the garbage can is monitoring exactly what you throw out and, you know, the street light knows exactly what time of day you pass by it. And Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff there, right? So I think, I think there's just the, the, the range of, of implications of this stuff is wide and we haven't been having the conversations. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really difficult for anybody to take it lightly right now to say, well... Sure, we've got all these messes and fires burning, and clearly we're no, you know, like we know that the laws and the policies we have are not containing these problems, and these are serious problems. It's really not a prudent time to me to to do more, right? Like, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm at the I really believe, and I know this. I'm at I love 
using a lot of technology. I'm a technologist. I see so much opportunity in technology. But you have to do it in a pragmatic, prudent way so that you know the trade-off is 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 worth it. Right. But I think, you know, to answer really like to back to like the the how much should we be I, I think we don't even know what to be worried about. That's that should be worrying, right? Like I, I could I could give you a hundred examples of different things that have happened to one or two or people or whatever else, other countries, other systems. And these systems are global. They're not contained by borders. So what may be not legal here may be being built somewhere else. And you know, it's very difficult to to contain that. So I think the fact that we don't even have a good handle on what all the risks are should be enough to be making people quite quite concerned. So in imagining a future Toronto 15 years from now, what do you see? It doesn't have to be your ideal city. It also doesn't have to be, you know, ringing the alarm bell. Mm-hmm. What, based on, you know, all, all of your research, you know, what you do in your profession, mm-hmm. what do you realistically see the city looking like and, uh, you know, how it's organized in 15 years? I think it's dark, but dark because of underfunding dark mm-hmm. from a lack of investment in the things that are basic infrastructure, housing, lack of housing. I see things being badly maintained, things that have been poorly built, things that, you know, I I really, I have a, f- a few friends right now that are looking for apartments and it's amazing the, um, uh, what do you call it? like the supply chain of impacts when you have a rental market like we have right now in Toronto, where even the, you know, the, the apartments, the way that they get renovated or maintained is shoddy. And mm-hmm. so you're having, you know, I've got one person out, they've, their water system broke, the other one had a sewer, like, you know, just things breaking down when there's such precarity. And so I think in 10, 15 years, at the moment, I don't see the leadership that looks poised to increase the amount of money, you know, cities, federal, provincial, you know, have to resolve core issues. Right. So that's, that's, the, that's the thing I see, and that's why I find this technology discussion is not the panacea to that, right? So then it's kind of like you can imagine the worst of both. You kind of imagine like we're already on a track without any additional tech stuff. Mm -hmm. Then you can think about having allocated funds to stuff that now is questionable maintenance or new problems. And, you know, that's just just double bad. I I would love to say that I saw emerging leadership um, that, really saw the need to make the moves necessary to, to raise funds here. I just don't. Like, last election, didn't see it, right? Even from the progressive front runner. You know, Jennifer Kiesmatt did not come out with a strong revenue-increasing plan right. to, to raise money. And you I... wanted to keep taxes at the rate of inflation. And this is the narrative. And it's not... Uh, it's, it's, it's to, I'm saying this simply because we, um, we don't see the power of our institutions like we should, and it bothers me. Because it's like, you know what, if this is what has to happen, do the thing, you know, act right. Like, these, these systems are here. Mm-hmm. I mean, someone was at uh, over the weekend just saying, why do progressives, again, air quotes, not, uh, not go for, like, a big policy change? Like, wh- why not? You're seeing it with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez right now, just throwing that, like, here's, here's the thing. Let's talk about this. Like, we need to, we have an urgency right now, right? Mm-hmm. So I wish I saw more of the, again, air quotes, progressive left, not try to be incremental, but to be, like, bold with this stuff. Like, if you're going to, you've been sitting on some power for some time now. We need real action, right? So yeah. I, I wish I was seeing that kind of stuff happening in Canada, and I don't. It just has such an incremental sort of, you know, middle of the road approach when meanwhile everybody who's not bothering to take urgent action isn't really feeling the heat either. 
right? So it's like, well, I can say the words of concern, but I'm not like really going to stick my neck out and make the change that needs to be made. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, that's challenging. You know, that's, that's challenging for me to feel excited about 10, 15 years because I see the political climate. It just, even, you know, the NDP has to start its narrative with something about business. Like right. it can't just say the thing that needs to be said. It has to be careful. And I've learned this over the years, how people have to dance around like economic development first. And it's like, no, we have to stop that. You know, human rights first, decent, you know, decent life first. What does it look like for everybody to have like a minimum bar here for, for what is okay for everybody, right? So I think, I think that progressive thing needs to really escalate, you know, what it, just to be what it could be. Like what, it's like false constraints. Like this is not by, this is all by design. This isn't because we don't have systems that wouldn't let us have another system. So right. I think it's a crisis of imagination, right? It's a crisis of like people holding on to power and not feeling urgent about the need to act. Like that's what's, that for me is what makes me sad about seeing where we could be in 10, 15 years. Just a whole bunch more people saying kind of progressive things, but meanwhile not helping people who really need help. That's darker. That's way darker than any technical dystopia to me. And that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, please be sure to encrypt the link before sharing it with friends. The last two episodes got flagged and bagged, and it's a hassle recoding it enough to throw off the algorithms. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composed our music until he got famous and moved to a fortified compound in Bonnie North Bay. But you can still find his music on SoundCloud in the archives under the name Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or VR me at Simulation D's. I'll be the dark elf in the Hawaiian shirt in the back left corner. It's my avatar, okay? I can, I can be what I want. If you'd like to pick up the book that inspired this throwback episode, look for Toronto 2033 at Spacing's virtual 401 Richmond Street West, or go to spacingstore.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or subscribe to our II feed, Urbanist news and opinions straight to your cornea. In the meantime, happy birthday to us. Here's to 15, wait, 30 years of spacing. Cheers. Cheers.